basically in the first two chapters, chapter one, Arjun doesn't want to fight. Chapter two, Krishna says you should fight. And so right now it's, it's kind of a toss-up. So in chapter three, uh, we're gonna, I'm going to try to cover all this stuff today without being too phonetic. But so chapter one, Arjun doesn't want to fight. Chapter two, Krishna gives him different arguments why you should fight. So in chapter three, Arjun comes out swinging at the belt. He has some more arguments. Arjun is reloaded, and uh, he's got some more arguments why he shouldn't fight. So basically, this is very interesting. Uh, I'm sure you've read in the books that the Bhagavad Gita synthesizes all kinds of currents that were going on in India at the time. And uh, one of the main, uh, you could say, dichotomies that, that, that get synthesized in the Bhagavad Gita is between karma and jnana. There was a path of action. Karma Mimangsa, they said that um, the essence of the Vedas is to perform sacrifice. Remember that? Our old friends, the Mimangsa people. They said, Swarga Karma Yajeta, one who wants to go to heaven should perform sacrifice and that all the knowledge portions of the Vedas are just there to encourage people to do sacrifice, but it's really just about karma, about these rituals. Then there was Vedanta, the Upanishads, that said, no, it's about knowledge. And then we had Shankara, who said it's only about knowledge, and ultimately all action is illusory because when you become enlightened, you realize you're not an individual person, and there aren't really eternal activities, they're just merging into the one, the Brahman. So there's been this dichotomy between does spiritual life or does religious life mean to be active in the world, to be active in the world, perform rituals, do good deeds, or is it about withdrawing and just meditating and trying to develop wisdom and knowledge? And so Arjun is going to play that card. Arjun therefore begins chapter 3 by saying, uh, Jaya Si Oh, another customer. Oh, yeah. So, Jaya Si Karmana So this is Arjun's argument. Arjun's trying to manipulate this conflict that was going on in India between karma and jnana by saying that, well, Krishna, if you really feel that uh, buddhi, intelligence, or knowledge, in other words, the jnana side, is better than uh, the karma side, then why are you engaging me in this horrible karma? In other words, if, if wisdom is better than action, why are you engaging me in horrible action, namely warfare? So Arjun thinks he's got a great argument going here. And then Arjun actually says to Krishna, Vyami Sreneva Vakyena, Bhuting Mohyasiva Mace. He's kind of being cute here, or clever. And he says that by your equivocal instruction, sort of like mixed instruction, Mishra means mixed, Vyami Sreneva Vakyena, by this mixed instruction, this confused instruction, you're advocating Bhuti, higher intelligence, but you're just confusing my intelligence. So. He thinks he's got a knockout punch here. And therefore, Arjun says to Krishna, Please make up your mind and just tell me one thing. Because you're telling me it's about knowledge. You know, we're eternal souls, we're not the body, and that life is really about understanding the eternal soul. So that's gyan, that's fine. But on the other hand, you're urging me to engage in action. That's karma. So is it gyan or is it karma? That's Arjun's basic argument. And therefore, he says, please just speak one thing. Not both. Don't mix them both together. That's literally what Arjun is saying here. Tadekam, Ekam means one. Tadekam Bhada, speak one thing. Tadekam Bhada means Chitya, making up your mind. Jaina Shreyohamakya. How can I really benefit myself? Is it this or that? And then Krishna is going to say, well, Krishna did say, actually he did say a long time ago, 
I really told you, Arjuna, but you weren't paying attention, that in this world there are two paths, there are two approaches. Namely, there's jnana yoga, for the people inclined to philosophy, and karma yoga for the yogis, those inclined to apply this knowledge in the world. So this is, this is a great synthesis. Krishna is saying that it's not karma versus jnana or karma or jnana, as you find, say, like Mimamsa and Shankara. Krishna is saying no. It's just different aspects of the same, of the same truth. And in chapter 5, which we'll come to today, Krishna is going to say that actually, if you really perform your actions properly, you'll come to knowledge. And if you really understand the truth, you will act in the world. That's going to be one of the main themes in the Gita. Truly enlightened people act in the world. They don't just run off to the forest to save themselves. They stay in the world and they do things in the world for the benefit of other people and even because of their own natures. So Krishna says, no, karma and jnana are just different aspects. You can approach it this way or that way, but it leads to the same goal. It all comes out to the same thing. So, uh, anyway, that's how this chapter starts. Now, Krishna gives an argument that you ultimately, even if you choose the path of knowledge, you still have to act in the world because you are active by nature. The soul is active by nature. Krishna says, no, well, I won't keep reading all the Sanskrit verses, but Krishna says that no one can refrain from acting even for a moment. Kshanamapi, even for a moment. Everyone at every moment is doing something. If you're meditating, that's also karma. That's also action. If you're renouncing, if you're fasting, if you're living in the forest, that's activity. It may be a different kind of activity, but you're still acting in the world. And therefore, Krishna says, Nahi sanyasa You can't just give up the world and think you'll become perfect. Because even if you leave society and go off to the forest, become a shramana, you're still doing something. You may just eat, you know, roots and leaves or whatever the yogis ate. That's a typical thing they call banya, forest fare, you know, the original organic salad. So you may, you may just go out to the forest and eat simple things. You may meditate, you may perform austerities, but you're still doing something. Therefore, you're not exempt from the law of karma. That's not how you become free from karma. So it's not, it's, there's no dichotomy between acting or not acting because everyone is really doing something at every moment. So that's Krishna's argument. And therefore, he says, the real way to get out of samsara, repeated birth and death, is not by imagining you'll be inactive because you're always going to be doing something. It's rather by performing your act in the spirit of sacrifice. That's the loophole. That's the way you get out of karma. You, you act in the world, whatever you do, but you dedicate the fruit of the work, as I explained last time. Whenever you act, there's a result. You have a job, you get paid. You know, you're a student, you get a grade, you get a degree. Everything you do, there's some result from it, and you have to offer that result to God. And if you do that, there's no karma, because the whole cause of karma is trying to enjoy the fruit of your own action. It's like... You're receiving gifts from the universe. You know, you know, it rains and then the food grows and all that. You're taking all these gifts and instead of offering back, just trying to keep it yourself. Hoarding all these gifts instead of offering back to the source. And that's the cause of karma. The cause of, of karma, the cause of samsara is not being active. It's being active the wrong way. It's being active selfishly. So this is the real point that Krishna is making in this chapter. And uh, he talks about the, the wheel that has been made to turn, namely that you know, we receive gifts from nature, 
that are originally coming from the gods, who are working under the Supreme God, capital G, and then you have to offer them back. And then Krishna even says that one who receives these gifts and without offering them back is a thief. He uses the word stena. Nothing but a thief. Stena eva. Nothing but a thief. Because, because you know, it, it, it's like if, if you move into an apartment and you turn on the lights and you run the water and you don't pay your utility bill, uh, they cut it off. Because, you, you know, you got to pay for it. It may seem like, no, just flick the switch and the lights go on, just turn the tap and the water goes on. Yeah, but someone's providing that for you and you got to pay for it. There's a utility bill. So the idea is there is a cosmic utility bill. And that's why you have to pay, that's why you have to perform sacrifice. Uh, now, what about people who have already come to knowledge? Krishna then talks about another category. People who uh, are already enlightened. Why do they have to do all this stuff? Because they already got the point. So Krishna talks about them. And he says that even people who are enlightened, he calls them atmarati, those who delight in the self, who are satisfied in the self, uh, who, in a sense, they have nothing to do because... If the whole point of all this is to be enlightened, if someone's already enlightened, Krishna says they should still act in the world in order to teach others, set the right example. Because in this culture, people follow the saintly, the, the enlightened people. So if you set the example of being inactive, people will follow your example and just, uh, it won't work for them because they're not ready to renounce. So set the right example, teach people how to perform dharma, how to do their duty, how to act properly in the world, by acting in the world. That's another point Krishna makes. Uh, and then he says, in any case, if you're enlightened, don't sweat, don't sweat the action because no one is doing anything anyway. And this will become a, a theme in, in this section of the Gita. No one is really doing anything anyway. On the one hand, because you have a material body, you have to act because your body is active. But because you're not the body, because you're an eternal soul inside the body, no one is really doing anything anyway. And therefore, don't worry about it. Because as a soul, as an eternal soul, you're just inside the body. The body's a virtual reality machine. And you're experiencing the world through the body. And so, you're just the observer inside the body. So that, that's another argument. And then Krishna says that um, I myself act in this world uh, to set the example. Krishna gives it the example of himself. Uh, and, uh, see, am I in the right place? Yeah. Now, so these are some of the themes of chapter three. Any questions on this so far? This, this is a, a quick summary, but this is what Krishna's talking about in chapter three. Yes? When the Bhagavad Gita talks about sacrifice, how much is it referring to the whole ritualistic aspect versus the more, like, general term, like, how we use sacrifice, just offering up something? Right. Great question. And Krishna's going to speak precisely on that in the next chapter. So, don't change the dial. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're going to actually get that in a second. That's a very good question. Then Krishna says that, no, Arjun, Arjun asks, at the Kena Priyukalyam, in, in the third chapter, why do people commit sin? Because there's ultimately going, there's three kinds of action that we'll all sort of anticipate that. Where to go? Uh, yeah, there's karma. Karma means your regular duties in the world. Like, you know, you're a Brahmana, you're a Kshatriya, you're a family person, or, or you're a celibate. Whatever you are, you have duties. Ashram duties and Varna duties. 
But then there's akarma. Akarma means freedom from karma, when you're beyond material activity. And then there's vikarma, which means sinful activity. What Krishna, anyway, we'll talk about that in, in regard to chapter 4. But Krishna, so Arjuna, in regard to vikarma, sinful activity, which is sort of off the charts, it's not being active within the Vedic system. And by the way, sin, ultimately, they are t- activities which are understood to destroy your freedom. It's just like, for example, let's say someone freely chooses to take an addictive drug. The result of that free choice is that you lose your freedom. So activities are called sin, not because, you know, God doesn't want people to have fun down here. But activities are considered to be sinful because they destroy freedom. They destroy our intelligence. So you choose to take a certain drug, or you choose to engage, let's say, in sexual promiscuity, or you choose to gamble. But they're activities which can lead to an addiction, destroying your freedom. And therefore, the activities are, are, are prohibited in the rational self-interest of the individual. That's the idea. So, Arjun says, by what is one impelled to commit sinful activities? And each of them, even not wanting to, as if by force. Sometimes we may rationally decide, I shouldn't do that, but you can't help yourself. You do it anyway. And this is Arjun's question. Why are people forced to act in ways that are actually, they know are irrational and not in their self-interest. And Krishna answers, it's because of uh, kama, lust, which, which covers. Krishna says, like, like smoke covers fire, or uh, as smoke covers fire, as dust covers a mirror, as the embryo covers, as the womb covers the child within. So our consciousness is covered by selfish desire. I mean, that's why people can't sit on juries when the defendant is a relative or a good friend of yours. Because if you have attachment, if you have personal interest, the more you have selfish desire, the less you can be objective. And this is all that Krishna is saying. That the more we are selfish, the less we can be objective. And perfect objectivity is enlightenment. It's simply being perfectly objective about the way the world really is. So the, 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 the devil here, you could say, is ignorance. It's not a person who is plotting against us, but it's actually ignorance. The problem is ignorance. So any, any questions on, on all this? That's sort of the third chapter. Then chapter four. Chapter four begins with a discussion of parampara. This is a very important concept in Hinduism, so uh, it's something you should really learn. This means succession. Param means another, another. It means like one after the other. So it means a succession, parampara. And Krishna explains in Bhagavad Gita that he begins chapter 4 by saying, Imang Vivasate Yogam. I spoke the Bhagavad Gita. I spoke the spiritual science to Vivaswan, sort of the, the chief executive of the sun, CEO of the sun. And then Vivasan spoke to uh, his son Manu. Manu spoke to Ikshavaku. And uh, thus the knowledge came down through this parampara. And the sages and great kings understood it in this way. Then Krishna says that, uh, and then Krishna tells Arjuna, this is very important, it's like when you buy a bottle of medicine, uh, it, has, it, it tells you how to take it, like take it so many times a day, or take it before you eat, after you eat, while you're eating, or whatever, in the sauna. So, so the idea is you get some pills, and then it tells you how to take the medicine. So the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna tells Arjuna, I'm speaking to you, Arjuna, because you are devoted to me, and you are my friend. Now, this is a work of philosophy, 
And interestingly, Krishna did not choose to speak the Gita to a philosopher, to a Brahmana. Because normally these things were discussed by Brahmins. Krishna chose Arjuna and tells Arjuna, I'm speaking to you because you're a friend, because you're devoted to me. And if you think about it, when two people trust each other, are very close, they reveal secrets. It's like most people don't go out in the street and tell their most intimate secrets to just like strangers. In fact, if people do that, it's kind of a, uh, a disorder that should be treated. Most people, most people tell their most intimate secrets to the, those who they're most intimate with. And that's what Krishna is telling Arjuna. And this is, you can see the logic of the bhakti tradition. That if there's a personal God, that personal God will reveal himself or herself to those who actually love God. It, it's sort of the normal psychology of relationships. And that's what Krishna tells Arjuna. And this knowledge comes out in parampara. So this is a very important concept. In fact, in India, in every uh, philosophy, every, every school of theology, every tradition, I mean, even if you, let's say you study Ayurveda, the medical study, there's a parampara. There's always a parampara. There's always a lineage of teachers coming down because everyone wants to be connected back to the original knowledge. Everyone wants to be connected to the original revelation coming from divine authority. And so, practically in every field in traditional Hinduism, there is a parampara. I mean, if you want to study wrestling, if you want to be a professional wrestler, there will be a wrestling parampara. And, and Krishna says here that there is a parampara for the Bhagavad Gita. Then Krishna talks about himself. Oh no, well, actually I should, first Arjun. Arjun, when Krishna says, I spoke to the sun god and... Uh, Sun God spoke to Manu. Arjun has an objection. He says, wait a second. I mean, come on, Krishna, you're my age, because they were, they were the same age, Krishna and Arjun, they were best friends. And uh, what do you mean you spoke to Vivaswan? I mean, Vivaswan lived a long time ago, and he's much older than you. And so what are we talking about here? How could you speak to the Katamita Bijaniya? How can I understand this, that you spoke to Vivaswan when you're his my age? And, he, and he's a primordial figure. <clears throat> So that's the trigger, that's the question which leads Krishna to begin talking about himself, who, he, who Krishna is. This is now Krishna talking about Krishna. So, what does Krishna say about himself? Uh, the first thing he says is, this is very interesting, because, well, he tells Arjuna that... Um, Actually, Arjun, you and I have both had many births. In fact, one of the great themes of Mahabharata is that, uh, well, there was an ancient incarnation of, called Nara Narayan. Nara, Nara means a man, and Narayan means the Lord. It's the name of God. So Nara Narayan means man and God. So one of the main themes of the Mahabharata is that Nara Narayan, this incarnation, this twin incarnation of man and God, that previously incarnated, as, uh, as great yogis, they have incarnated again, they have come to the world again as Arjuna and Krishna. And this, this of course, is one of the things that Krishna is going to say. That yada, yada, this, this is, there's one verse in the Gita which uh, most Hindus, at least over a certain age, they know this, and uh, when, when you address a Hindu audience, whenever you quote the Sanskrit verse, everyone chimes in, everyone jumps in, because everyone knows it. it it's one of the most famous and popular Gita verses, which is, yada yada hi dharmasya, those of you from India, you know, I know you feel that urge to jump in, but, yada yada hi dharmasya glanir bhavati bharata, 
which means whenever uh, dharma, whenever dharma is collapsing, is declining, and adharma, the opposite, irreligion or evil, is ascendant. Krishna says, uh, at that time I manifest myself. At that time I come to this world whenever dharma is declining and I personally reestablish dharma. So this is one of the most famous uh, scriptural statements in all of Hinduism, actually. And it occurs right in this section. So Krishna tells Arjun that uh, we've had many births. You've forgotten them, Arjun, but I remember them. Uh, so this is a distinction between, in a sense, Nara and Narayan. This is the distinction between a human being and God in the Bhagavad Gita that Arjuna and Krishna, even though they incarnate together, Arjuna can't remember the past lives, but Krishna can remember all of them. In fact, Krishna says he remembers, he knows everything of past, present, present, and future. And then he says, uh, see if I have any more space here. Krishna then says in verse 2-6 that a is very interesting. And this, is, this gets into the one, of, one of the most critical theological areas in Vaishnavism, which is perhaps the main wing of Hinduism. Aja uh, means unborn. Ajo, ajo, even though unborn, being, this is just the present participle being, even though, even being unborn, still I come to this world. So, uh, within this Vedic Hindu tradition, because a central, a very central understanding in the tradition is that God comes to the world as the avatar and uh, appears in a human form. And because you have all this powerful Vedanta, Upanishadic, philosophical tradition that uh, we are not the body. The body is just a covering of the eternal Atman, which is Brahman and so on. So this whole philosophical apparatus is teaching that the real person, or, or not necessarily the person, but the real, our real existence is not the outward body. The body is just a covering. And then you get the avatar, an appearance of the divine within a human or a human-like body. And so the big issue becomes, is this human body just a material body? Is there some impersonal Brahman, some impersonal Brahman, impersonal absolute, which has simply taken on a visible human-like body in order to communicate with human beings, earthlings, or... As the Vaishnava tradition teaches, and as ultimately Krishna teaches in the Gita, and we'll come to that, that it actually is a spiritual form. And this is the great divide. This is the great, one of the great philosophical divides in Hinduism. And actually, it's one of the great philosophical divides in, in, in frankly, in world religions. If you study, for example, in the Islamic tradition around a thousand years ago, the uh, Mutazila, who were this uh, group of sophisticated theologians in the court of Baghdad, who were really into Greek philosophy, Aristotle and so on, and they kind of philosophized the personal Allah away. And they came to this conclusion that in the Quran, whenever we find descriptions, very personal descriptions of God, God is like a king, God sits on his throne, he extends his hand in justice and so on forth, so forth. This is all poetic and, and, and it's very much they dealt with, hermeneutically, they dealt with these descriptions the way that the, the, um, the Shankar's followers did. This is just a way of talking, this is just a way of talking to help people to get into the ball game, but actually 
God is not really personal, doesn't really have a form in that sense. It's just a way of talking because that's where we're at now. And you sort of grab on where you can, and then once you get further enlightenment, you let go of these anthropomorphic little, you know, like little um, like training wheels, you could say. You know, just sort of something to help you for the moment. Now, this is basically what the Mutazila said. And, and there, was, there was a backlash within Islam, and I forget the name, but there was a great uh, Muslim theologian. This is, uh, maybe some of you know it. The name starts with an A. Ashari or something like I think Ashari, something like that. Anyway, he countered this and said, no, actually these descriptions describe a real personal deity. I mean, you find the same thing in medieval Spain, Spain of the Moors, where you have the great Jewish uh, philosopher Maimonides saying that basically the descriptions of a personal God are just there for the sort of like the intellectual peasantry. And you find Ma- uh, Meister Eckhart in, your, in the Christian tradition. So basically throughout world religions, you find in the Buddhist tradition, a debate. For example, the Pudgalavada say that no, we really are persons. There really is eternal personal life. And of course, the, the uh, so-called mainstream Buddhism opposing this. So really, you could say that within world religions, talking about ultimate things, talking about what's most important, there's this great debate going on for thousands of years throughout world religions about the status of our personal existence. Are we now we experience ourselves as persons. We're individual. We value freedom. We have our own ideas and feelings. We have will. Is this really who we are? Does enlightenment just mean that we have to purify ourselves? As Plato talks about purifying the soul. Do we have to just purify ourselves and get into higher consciousness, free ourselves from selfishness, and become perfect persons, enlightened persons? Or is this whole thing of being a person all a mistake, and ultimately we're not persons? Now, if God is a person, that validates our own personal existence, and we are ultimately persons. And if God, or the Absolute, or whatever you call it, the great it up there, if the Absolute is not personal, not personal, then, and if we come from that, and that's our source, and you've got to go back to your source, what goes around comes around, then we are not ultimately personal. So this is, this is really the uh, 64 million rupee question. Not only within Hinduism, but within world religions, you could say. And Krishna addresses this, and Krishna will come down on the side of personalism. Krishna will come down on the side, and, and will, as we go through the Gita, there are many, many powerful statements to this effect, where Krishna very decidedly, very explicitly, unambiguously will say, I am a person, and ultimately, personal existence is real and final. You really are an eternal person. We've already seen one example of this in the second chapter, where Krishna said, Never did I not exist, nor you, nor these kings. And all of us, literally, this is a very literal translation, all of us will continue to exist forever. So anyway... Uh, so Krishna is now talking about himself. Basically, he describes that I come to this world whenever dharma is collapsing and adharma, when the bad guys are winning, I come. Basically, Krishna says, and he says that he restores justice and order and civilization and dharma within the unit within the world. Uh, boy, there's so much. To have I mean, you could very easily take any one of these verses in the Gita and give a class or more than one class on it. So. Uh, Anyway, I just don't have that much time. Uh, 
Then Krishna makes another interesting statement, which, which perhaps I should talk about. And that is, he says that everyone is actually on my path. So what does he mean by this? He says that actually, well, in Sanskrit, jijata mam prapadyante. As people approach me, tam satayi pajamiha, I precisely reciprocate with them. As people approach me, I precisely reciprocate, and all people are actually on my path. What that means is, as we will see later in the Gita, that um, all that exists is ultimately, in a sense, well, well, according to the Gita itself, everything that exists is Krishna, in the sense that everything emanates from, or everything is resting on Krishna or God. Therefore, whatever you do, let's say you become an atheist, and you're interested in the material world, but that material world is also God's energy. And so in your own way, just unconsciously, you are also meditating on God. And this is, this is actually what Krishna will say in chapter 7. Uh, we'll discuss that Friday. Krishna will say that after many births, uh, a person who finally comes to knowledge understands Vasudeva Sarva, that Krishna or God is everything, in the sense that we turn out to be an energy of God, the living energy of God, physical matter, is there another kind of matter? Anyway, the physical world is the unconscious, unliving energy of God, but everything that exists is the energy of God. And therefore, whatever you pay attention to, whatever you're trying to enjoy, whatever you're thinking about, at every moment, consciously or not, you are actually thinking about God, you are touching God, you are hearing God, you are seeing God, whether you're aware of that fact or not. Yes? Does Krishna get into the problem of, um, I guess, people who do really bad and horrible things, I mean, they're also dealing with the energy of God or, like, hate and suffering and all of those horrible things? I mean, people talk about it all the time. The problem of evil. Yeah, the problem of evil. Uh, Yeah, I guess we could talk about that since I brought this talk very briefly. We did talk about that earlier in the course. Um... The idea is that, that because of the law of karma, as, as hard a pill as it may be to swallow, the teaching of the Gita or, or the Hindu tradition in general, the teaching of karma, the teaching of the Buddhist tradition as well, is that although in this life, as a human being, as Mr. or Miss or Mrs. So-and-so, I may be innocent, and yet I bring with me my baggage, my karma baggage from a previous life. And therefore, when we see an apparently innocent person suffering, uh, that person is innocent, innocent in human terms, but not in cosmic terms. And therefore, ultimately, when we do evil, uh, we are not really ultimately creating innocent victims. This does not mean that we don't care about justice, as I explained earlier, because no one can take the law in their own hands. You can't harm someone saying that, well, unless it was your karma, I couldn't have done that to you. Like, I just shot you. But unless you had that bad karma, I couldn't have done it. So what's the problem? The problem is you can't take the law into your own hands. And karma has to play out. It's just like you can't go into the... I mean, when, when Kennedy was assassinated, and they believed that... Uh, I won't go into you know, the whole thing of who killed Kennedy. But they arrested Oswald, right? And I, I remember watching that on television. That was 1963, so I guess I was like one year old or something. Just kidding. But I was... <laughs> It was 1963. I remember that. I could, because when Kennedy was killed, the next day everybody just kind of stayed home. I think they closed the school or something. And uh, we were watching TV. We were just like, the TV was just on all day. And I remember watching it. This guy just walked into the Dallas prison and, and shot Oswald. 
and it was like, you know, people thought, you know, the sky is falling. So you can't do that. You can't walk into the prison and shoot people. So in that sense, even though the law of karma is there, you can't take the law into your own hands. Any questions so far on all these points? There's just so many points. Um, sacrifice. Another thing I wanted to mention in the short time allotted to me is that um, Krishna is really reinterpreting. Not reinterpreting. He, well, what Krishna claims to be doing is setting Dharma right. Now, if you look at the Mahabharata, if you read the Mahabharata, that world of the Mahabharata is really in the Hindu mind. It's sort of like the quintessential Vedic culture. The Varnas are in place. There are Brahmanas, Kshatriyas, Vaishyas, and Shudras. People live in ashrams. People perform Vedic sacrifices. And uh, it's a very much a Vedic world. And yet, in the middle of all that, uh, Krishna says, explaining why he has come to the world again. Uh, okay. Krishna says that Avam Parampara Prabhupada, whoops, oh, there it is. That knowledge comes down through Parampara, but Sakali Nehamata Yoga Nashta Parampara. Through the great passing of time and the powerful effect of time, the spiritual science is lost. And therefore, Krishna says that uh, he says that through time, this, this is what he actually says Yoga Nashta. Uh, yoga, this just means yoga. Nashta means it's lost. Yoga is lost. The spiritual science is lost. So Krishna claims that he has come again because the actual yoga, the actual spiritual science has been lost and he's speaking it again. And then he says a few verses later that he comes when dharma is, uh, the exact Sanskrit words he uses is uh, dharmasya glani. The word glani uh, means collapsing, deteriorating, and so on. So Krishna says when there is a glani, when there is a collapse or deterioration, a waning of dharma, he comes. And because yoga is lost, the spiritual science is lost. So in chapter 4, Krishna says that, and this answers the question about sacrifice, your question, that um, Krishna says it's the principle of sacrifice. I mean, you can physically take, let's say, clarified butter and offered into a fire and chant certain mantras or certain sounds like swaha and so on. So you can actually do that or pour milk into a fire. But the real point is that you're taking an offering and you're giving it to a recipient. And the recipient is God or some agent of God. So it's that dynamic of offering and the offering being accepted. That's the real point. Not the physical fire or the clarified butter uh, or, the, uh, or the milk and so on. And certainly not the animal, in the animal sacrifice. But it's the, it's the act of offering. And therefore, Krishna gives all these different alternatives. Like there's many different ways that you can offer. It's not just in a physical fire. Krishna says, for example, that there's, um, there's dravya jagas. There's a sacrifice of dravya, actual physical things. Uh, but there's also tapodhyagya. If you perform asceticism, if you go out and perform austerities, that can be your offering to God. Tapo, uh, the, the offering of austerity. Or uh, yoga yagyas. You can, perform, you can practice yoga and your yoga meditation. That's also a sacrifice. Swadhyaya jnana. You can study 
sacred books. That's also a sacrifice. In fact, Krishna will say at the end of the Bhagavad Gita that whoever reads this book is actually worshipping me by the sacrifice of knowledge. Because, one is, because when you read something and pay attention to it, in a sense you're offering your attention, your consciousness. And Krishna will say at the end of the Gita that that is a sacrifice. Reading Bhagavad Gita is a sacrifice. He says that you can offer the breath, you know, the pranayama, the yoga system. You can offer the, the, the incoming breath into the outgoing breath. You can offer, when you look at things, you can offer the sense objects into the senses. You can offer all of your sensory activities into your mind. These are all different yoga activities. But the basic principle, which he describes at, um, am I going to find it here? Anyway, somewhere in there. The basic principle, which is, Krishna states in the verse, Brahmarpanam Brahmahavir. Krishna says that when you make an arpanam, an offering, arpanam means offering, when you make an offering to Brahman, to the absolute or God, the havir, which literally means the clarified butter, the ghee that, that you offer to the sacrifice, they call it butter oil in Australia. But anyway, the clarified butter is called havir, literally. Uh, he says that also becomes Brahman. When you offer to the absolute, the physical thing you offer becomes absolute. Brahma havir. Brahmadna, and the fire which receives your offering becomes also a manifestation of God. It's God actually the absolute accepting your offering in the form of fire. Agni. Agni from which we get the English word ignition, by the way. But you might like that. So Brahmarpanam, Brahmahavir, Brahmadna, Brahmanahutam, and the person who makes the offering becomes Brahman. Becomes and then Brahmaivatena Gantavyam. And the person that offers then will go to the Absolute by what Krishna calls Brahma-Karma-Samadhi-Na. By the Samadhi, Samadhi is the last stage of yoga, trance, absorption. By the Samadhi of Brahman work, Brahma-Karma. So, so this is a whole new way of looking at it. But Krishna <coughs> claims this is the real spiritual science. It was lost. Dharma was lost. And I'm bringing back, restoring what was originally there. That's Krishna's claim. So that's the, that's the principle of sacrifice, that when you make an offering to the Absolute, you become transformed. Because it's not just the physical thing you offer that's accepted. You become accepted as the person offering, and the whole process becomes drawn into the same Absolute atmosphere, and you become spiritualized. I mean, the example is given, like you take iron and put it in fire, the iron becomes fire. So you, through the act of sacrifice, actually become transformed into a spiritual being. And, that's the, and so that's Krishna's explanation of what sacrifice is. And that's why you can offer your sense activities, your mental activities. You can offer your intelligence by studying scriptures. You can actually offer physical things. Although Krishna says that offering your consciousness in the sense of trying to understand is higher than just offering physical things. Like say you offer incense, typical Indian puja. You offer, well, imagine this is an incense shine like this. So... <laughs> You know, if you, dravya, Sanskrit is called dravya, like you offer incense or you offer a flower, the typical things that are offered even by the Buddhists, they're called dravya. So Krishna says, better than offering these physical things, offer your consciousness. See the world the way God sees the world. And that's the better offering. That's a higher offering. That's what Krishna says in this chapter. So this is a reevaluation of sacrifice, or Krishna claims a restoration of the original principle of sacrifice. Any questions on that? Ten more minutes, yes? But even within the 
there's two different ways of sacrifice, one physically and one just mentally. Uh, things be like impersonal, that one actually goes and offers the food, and the other person well, Krishna will say later in the Gita that any of these activities done without really putting your heart into it will not will not really produce a great effect. So, so it's not just a, a blind ritual. You have you have to it has to be done consciously. Yes. Is this part of the one which Oh, yoga will be without conscious Yeah, actually, yeah. We actually want to talk about there are a lot of parallels with the Yoga Sutras. Because ultimately it's about consciousness. Now, racing over to chapter 5. We have five minutes, chapter 5. Yeah, the same point Krishna says. There's a really interesting verse. I'll read you the Sanskrit because it's a bunch of present participles that are really cool, sort of poetic. Krishna says, Naiva kinchit karomiti. One who really understands the truth and is connected in yoga uh, knows, or, or that person should understand that I'm not doing anything at all. This is the meditation. I'm not doing anything at all. Naiva kinchit karomi. And then Krishna says, here, here go the present participles. Pashan shinvan shaban so Banshwasan, Palapan, Visajan, Grindan, Unmishan, Nimishana, P. So, seeing, hearing, touching, smelling, eating, walking, sleeping, breathing, speaking, accepting, uh, rejecting, opening your eyes, closing your eyes. Indriyani, Indriyarteshu, Vartadikit, Arayan. The person should always remember it's just the external senses acting in the sense objects. It's not really you. You're the witness. You are the witness. It's your body interacting with material nature and you are inside the body witnessing it. This is what the yogi should keep in mind and not become attached. So, then another uh, important statement uh, regarding the problem of evil that was brought up also. That uh, Krishna says, Nadate... Oh, that's what Sorry. Before that... 10 seconds. Krishna says you can't really physically give up the world. Even if you go to the forest, you're still in the forest, right? So, Krishna says mentally you have to give up things by this meditation that I'm not doing, I'm just the witness. By this meditation, mentally give up the sense, the sense of proprietorship over everything. Krishna talks about that. And then he says, not that they cuss you up. I'm not responsible for anyone's sinful activities or pious activities. The idea is that we actually have free will. And so God does not take responsibility for our choices uh, because we have free will. That's another thing stated in the Gita. The power of knowledge, that knowledge will destroy our sins. That ultimately, if you come to the right, under, right understanding, knowledge will actually free you. The, the, the truth will set you free, basically. And then at the end of chapter 5, Krishna mentions three times, which I find interesting, Brahma Nirvana. You know Nirvana from Buddhism. Nirvana. But Krishna talks about a Brahma. Nirvana in the absolute. In the absolute. In other words, you become free of samsara by coming to a higher platform. It's just like if you're in Florida, you're not in Milwaukee. How did I know that? So, so the idea is if you're in Brahman, if you're in Brahman, then you're not in samsara. 
And again, the offering, Brahmarpana. If you make your offering to Brahman, you become transformed into Brahman because the idea being we are originally Brahman. All of us are originally spiritual beings. We've forgotten it. So by the act of offering, you revive that nature and then you get nirvana. Yes? So this would be contrasted with the Buddhist nirvana where they're not anywhere? Exactly. This is, this is sort of like a counteroffer. Like you can have nirvana and eat your Brahman too. So yeah, that, it, it's, it's definitely the idea. That's definitely the idea that the natural way, because Krishna said in chapter 2, Parangvishwa, it's by experiencing something higher that you let go of something lower. You know, if you're attached, let's say, in a relationship, that's not really good for you. And then you meet someone that really is much more attractive to you. Then, you know, that attachment which you couldn't break, it's like gone in a second. Or let's say you, you, you get an offer, job offer, that's just the best you got, so you have to take it. But suddenly, let's say you're offered three times more money, it's very easy to give up the other job offer. So the idea being that if you actually come to this Brahman consciousness, then you very easily and naturally let go of, of material attachment. So yes, it, it was very much uh, touching on the same point and arguing that this is a positive way to come to Nirvana. Because you not only have the negative concept near, without, near means without, without vana, without the currents of material life, samsara, but you achieve this naturally by getting something higher and absolute, which is your real self, actually, in relation to the supreme self. That was the idea. Okay, I do have three minutes. Actually, that's four minutes. So we'll do chapter six in four minutes, for chapter six. Um, well, in the beginning of chapter six, Krishna stresses individual responsibility. There's one really neat verse, I think, where he says, um, that one should elevate oneself by the self and not degrade oneself. Just sort of existentialism. Don't have time to go into the whole history of existential philosophy. The idea is that we are individually responsible, even if God helps us, which he talks about later in the Gita. You should elevate yourself by yourself and not degrade yourself. You're responsible for what, what happens. Bliss. Krishna describes in chapter 6 the yoga system of going to a secluded place, sitting down, how you should keep your body straight. Nasikagram. Uh, you should meditate on the tip of your nose without going cross-eyed. And uh, then Krishna says that you achieve a happiness, that when you achieve that, the, the yogi thinks there's no, there's no greater happiness beyond this. That's a... Uh, that you achieve a happiness which is um, acceptable to your highest intelligence, Krishna. There are some pleasures in life where the next morning we kind of wonder about it. But Krishna says this is a pleasure which is literally acceptable to your highest intelligence. Your highest intelligence can embrace this pleasure as being your ultimate self-interest. And when you achieve this, you know there's nothing beyond this. This is the highest pleasure, the greatest happiness. Uh, then uh, the oneness by seeing God everywhere. Arjun after the fallen yogi. Arjun says, well, this seems very difficult. How can we really practice this? And Krishna says, no, it's possible. Then Arjun says, what about someone that takes up the practice 
and then falls from the practice. It seems like they've lost their material life because they took up spiritual life, then they kind of flop in spiritual life, and they got nowhere to go. Like the whole thing is a disaster. And that's when Krishna explains that the fallen yogi actually is rewarded very handsomely. Even if you try to practice the spiritual life, Krishna says, and you fail, uh, you will be reborn in a very, very high position. You have a chance to satisfy all your material desires and again take up your spiritual life again. So Krishna talks in chapter 6 about all the special benefits given to someone who simply tries to practice the spiritual life. And, uh, and then, finally, whoops, one minute, slide in under the tag here. Krishna ends chapter 6 by saying that of all yogis, the one who is devoted to me is the highest yogi. And in general, a yogi is better than a jnani, better than simply studying knowledge, better than practicing karma, better than doing all these things, is to be a yogi. Better than an ascetic is a yogi, and of all yogis, the one who is devoted to God is the highest yogi. And that's the end of the chapter. So, thank you very much. See you Friday.